All right. Good morning, everybody. So, as Keith said, we're picking up in the Apostles' Creed. We uh, started about a month ago. We did two weeks in the Creed, and then we took two weeks off. But we're back, and we're going to be in the Creed for a while. Uh, If you've missed the first couple weeks, uh, the Apostles' Creed is a very ancient summary of the core beliefs of the Christian faith. Uh, We have evidence that this creed was being used in the very earliest uh, baptismal ceremonies of the church. And it's one of those rare statements that you you could have all the major branches of the Christian church agree upon. Catholic, Protestant... Uh, Eastern Orthodox, they would all be able to affirm this creed together. So what we're doing this fall is we're taking the creed line by line, and we're asking ourselves, what does it mean to confess this creed? What does it mean to say, this is what we believe? So what I want to do every week that I'm preaching on the creed is to begin by, if you are able, us all standing up together and reciting the creed. Um, I think it would be great if by the end of this series we have all committed this to memory. So, let's say this together and remember uh, the point I like to make. When we say, I believe, we are not just saying, I think this is true or that it exists. We are saying, I'm putting my hope in this, I'm putting my trust in this, putting my confidence in this. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. All right. Great job. You can be seated. So, so far, we've only examined the very beginning of the creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And this week, we're actually starting a new section in the creed. You might have noticed, the way this is worded, there's what you might call a Trinitarian structure to the creed, right? It says, I believe, explicitly, three times. I believe in God the Father, I believe in Jesus Christ, and I believe in the Holy Spirit. Right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Three members of the Trinity. And the member of the Trinity that gets the most focus during the creed is Jesus. The creed has some very specific things to say about God the Son, Jesus Christ. And the line we're looking at today says three things about Jesus. uses three terms to describe him. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, God's only Son, our Lord. So, Christ, God's only Son, and our Lord. And what we're going to do this morning is we're just going to unpack the meaning of those three terms. All right, so first of all, Christ. I believe in Jesus Christ. And most of us have heard those two words together all of our lives, Jesus Christ. Even if we didn't grow up in church, we've heard those two words together. People sometimes use them as a curse, right? And we may have just assumed, oh, that must be Jesus' last name, 
right? Joseph and Mary Christ had Jesus Christ. Um, but in those days, they didn't really have last names the way we do today. You know, someone might be named uh, Simon, son of John, right? That was the way that they referred to their lineage. Uh, people might also be identified by their profession, like uh, Simon the Tanner, or where they came from, the town they came from, Judas of Iscariot, um, or even the uh, tribe of Israel that they were a part of, like Aaron the Levite. But they did not have last names the way that we do today. So when you hear Christ, you don't want to think of a name. You want to think of a, a title, you know, like Jesus, attorney at law. <laughs> uh, Jesus, Ph.D., and this title, Christ, is a title with a, a very long history. It's a very special title. Uh, the word Christ, Christos, is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah. Now, a lot could be said about this title, Messiah. Where does it come from? What does it mean? But the gist of it is this. As the Jews studied their scriptures and looked at the prophecies throughout them, they discerned that there was this reoccurring theme. And the theme was, one day a special king is going to come, a king that is anointed by God, whose, whose God's presence is going to be on this king on a special, in a special way, and this king will be not just king of Israel, but king of the whole world. And this king is going to bring justice and healing and set things right with the whole planet. And the title that was given to this king was Messiah. And there was this expectation, one day the Messiah is going to come. The Messiah, the Christos. So, when you hear Messiah, you want to think something like, um, or when you, when you hear Christ, you want to think Jesus Messiah, which means something like Jesus, long-expected king. So, Messiah is the hope-for king of Israel who would fulfill God's promises and set things right with the world. In the Gospel of Mark, when uh, Jesus is arrested, he's taken before the Jewish high priest. And the Jewish high priest asks him, just straightforwardly, are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? In other words, are you the person that we've been waiting for? And Jesus just says, yep, I am. I am. So when we confess, I believe in Jesus Christ, we're saying at least two things. Right? First of all, we're saying, I believe Jesus is this long-awaited king of Israel that they were expecting, come to bring healing and justice to the world. And we're also saying, whether we realize it or not, something like, the Old Testament matters, right? Because we can't fully understand Jesus' identity unless we know the story that he's a part of, right? Jesus is the fulfillment of the story of Israel. And if we really want to understand who Jesus is, it helps for us to have this familiarity with the Old Testament, right? So we declare that together. We confess that the first part of the Bible matters to us as well. All right, so that's Christ. Let's talk about the next one, next term. I believe in Jesus, God's only son. Only son. Now you might be wondering, okay, well why, why does it say that Jesus is God's only son? You might remember that when we looked at the first line in the creed, 
we talked about how we confess God to be a father. And what we should hear when we, we say that is we confess God to be like a loving parent, right? We are sons and daughters of God. That's part of our confession is that we see ourselves in that way. But then we come to this line where we say, oh, well, God only has one son. So is that contradictory? Well, it's not contradictory if we understand the way that son is being used here, okay? We are not saying that there's only one person God relates to as a loving parent. Jesus taught us to see God as a loving parent, right? He, he, he taught us to see God as a, a loving parent who knows how to give good gifts to his children. So that's not what we're saying. But what we are saying is that there is only one person who has ever lived who is fully God. A hundred percent God in the flesh. You know, one way of thinking about this would be to, to say something like, we all have the ability to become adopted sons and daughters of God. But there is only one person who ever lived who was truly God from God. That's the way that the Nicene Creed puts it, which is a, a creed very much like the Apostles' Creed. It just expands on it a little bit. But it says, we confess Jesus Christ to be God from God. Only one person uh, was ever God from God, fully and completely God in the flesh. Here's the way that the Gospel of John puts this. This is a very dense passage. There's a lot to take in, but uh, if you want to follow along in your Bible, this is where we're going to spend the majority of our time in the Scriptures. So John chapter 1. Uh, John writes, Through him, meaning through Jesus, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so John says that Jesus is the one who created the world, the one through whom the world was made, in flesh, in a human body. He is the source of all light and life incarnated. And he is unique in these respects. There's nobody else like him because, as John says, he is the one and only son. But this one and only son, this only person that's ever lived who is God from God, makes it possible for us to be adopted into God's family as his sons and daughters, right? John says, to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. If we can recognize Jesus as God in the flesh, if we, can, if we can recognize him as the glory of God revealed to us, then we can become God's children. Then we can embrace an identity as sons and daughters of God. 
If we receive him, meaning if we welcome him into our lives as our teacher and our king, and even our friend, right? Then we can become sons and daughters of God. Then we, we can become people who know God on a deep level and who are becoming more like him in the way that we live. Now, somebody might ask, well, isn't it kind of narrow-minded and arrogant to say that Jesus is God's only son? But what, about, what about all the other religions? Isn't that being dismissive of them? Well, there's no getting around the fact that as Christians, we make a claim that is very specific, and it's very narrow, and it's even potentially offensive, right? Which is that Jesus is the one and only true king of the world. Uh, Jesus is the one and only God from God, the one and only incarnation of the creator of the world. We do say that. We do proclaim that. But we should clarify what we don't mean by that, okay? We don't, we're not saying when we say that, that Christians are the only people who have ever had any experience with God at all. We're not saying that we have this monopoly on any kind of uh, encounter with the divine. Look again at what uh, John says. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Now I looked this up in the Greek, and everyone uh, means everyone. Surprise. <laughs> uh, panta anthropon, uh, all mankind. Okay? So what John seems to be saying is that the light of Jesus Christ shines and has always shone on all people everywhere. Now, what does that mean? Okay, well, there's a lot of meaning packed into that word light. Uh, light is a way of describing goodness, beauty, uh, spiritual knowledge, uh, moral conscience, awareness of, of right and wrong. So, what John seems to be saying is that everyone has had some experience of that light. And because of that, they've, they've had some kind of experience of God simply by existing in this world, right? Because the true light that gives light to everyone shines on them. And so the way that I would put this is something like, people experience the true light that gives light to everyone whenever they give or receive love. Uh, people experience the true light that gives light to everyone whenever they forgive or show mercy or are shown forgiveness and mercy. People experience the true light that gives light to everyone every time they feel a, a tug in their hearts to love their neighbor as themselves. Whenever they forego retribution and turn from violence. People experience the true light whenever their conscience convicts them of something that is wrong. Whenever they uh, appreciate the beauty of nature and feel gratitude for their lives. People experience the true light that gives light to everyone when they're moved to tears because something is profound or beautiful and it hits them deeply. And as that light shines on everybody, some people are more open to receiving it and some people kind of turn their face from it. But the light shines. The light of Christ shines always on everyone. 
So as Christians, our claim is not that only Christians have had any experience of God. Okay, that's too extreme. But what we do claim is that the true light that gives light to everyone became a person. And if we really want to know personally the light that shines on us, we need to know him and we need to receive him. If we really want to experience the light that shines in all of its glory on everyone, then we need to be open to, to him. We need to welcome him. Um, and I think if we are truly open to receiving the light that has already come to us, when we see Jesus, when we encounter him, we'll realize that he is the true source of that light. You know, I think the way that what I'm describing here, this way of thinking, it has implications for how we share our faith. So here's one way of thinking about it. You know, rather than approaching someone with this attitude of like, well, I know God and you don't, maybe a better attitude to have is, is to assume you've already heard God's voice. His light shines on you every day. You've heard him in the still small voice that calls you towards love and wisdom and patience and forgiveness and mercy and gratitude and peace. And that still small voice that's been calling you all your life towards those things, that voice took on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. And if you take a good look at Jesus, I think you'll recognize in him the one who has been whispering to your heart all your life. And as you encounter Jesus and you move closer towards him, it will be like the veil that's been separating you from that voice is lifted. And now you have this, this, this closeness that you never had before with the divine. Jesus will light up what until this point has been fuzzy. Uh, he, will, he will make radiant what has been in the shadows. Because he is the full radiance of God's glory. He is the light shining in the darkness that the darkness cannot overcome. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only son. There's no one who compares to Jesus. He's second to none. Throughout the history, there have been people who have claimed to hear from God, right? Uh, people have claimed to be prophets and uh, spiritual guides and that sort of thing. And, you know, some of them have said some good things. Someone, some of them have accurately reflected back some of the light that's shown on them from God. And some of them have said some really terrible things, very misleading things. But Jesus is different from all of them because Jesus did not just claim to be a teacher or a spiritual guide. He claimed to be God from God, God in the flesh, God incarnate. Now, he is not the only one in history to make that claim. But others who claim to be God tend to fall into two categories, and Jesus doesn't seem to fit in either of those. So the first category of people who claim to be God are, are people who are obviously mentally unstable. Right? Uh, psych wards tend to have some people who have these delusions of divinity. 
But when you look at Jesus' life, you do not see the characteristics of someone who is mentally unstable, right? You see someone who demonstrates wisdom, uh, demonstrates restraint, someone who knows exactly the right thing to say when forced into a corner. So th these are not the characteristics of someone who is mentally unstable. And then the other kind of person that claims to be divine tends to be narcissistic and controlling. And those kind of people, they're not inclined to die for your sake. They're not inclined to hang on a cross to rescue you. Usually they're the kind of people who demand that you die to protect them. Right? They're not the kind of people who, when the crowds come to arrest them, say, put down your swords. They're the kind of people who say, hey, let's make sure we've stockpiled enough assault weapons on the compound. Cult leaders, right? Jesus, Jesus wasn't like that. So Jesus is different. He makes these extraordinary claims about himself, and yet he's radically humble. And not only does he willingly give his life, but he, he even openly forgives those who are taking it. And he prays for them. He says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. So that, that's why we say that Jesus is God's only son. Because other people and teachers, they might be able to reflect some of the, the true light that shines on everyone. But only Jesus is the source of that life enfleshed, incarnate. And when we look at his life, we can see that. All right, one more. I believe in Jesus, our Lord. What, what does that mean? Well, to some extent, it just means what we've been talking about already, that Jesus is God in the flesh. But there's another angle here that we might miss. In the early church, it was a big deal to say that Jesus is Lord because you were supposed to confess somebody else as Lord. You're supposed to say Caesar is Lord, the Roman emperor. Uh, coins from that time say on them, Caesar is Lord. And the emperor actually claimed, some of the emperors claimed to have divine status. So I guess they would fall in the narcissistic and power-hungry category there. So when the church said Jesus is Lord, they were saying something that had political implications. Whoever the worldly authority is, is not the highest or truest authority. So when we say that Jesus is our Lord, what we're saying is that Jesus is the only authority we give our full devotion and allegiance to. He is the only one who deserves our whole heart. He's the only one who is consistently worth following. You know, political leaders, whatever kind they are, whether they're kings or emperors or presidents or senators, uh, they are a mixed bag. Some are really bad. Some are decent. There's probably a few that are actually pretty good. But none of them are even close to perfect, right? And none of them are divine, that's for sure. So they should not have 
our hearts. They may warrant our respect. They may warrant our informed vote. Right? There may be times where they even warrant our service. And unless a political leader asks us to do something blatantly sinful, we should respect the laws of the land. You know, if, if the political leaders say, wear your seatbelt or you get a fine, um, then we should comply with that, right? Because there's nothing sinful about wearing a seatbelt. And that's not giving our total devotion and allegiance to political leaders, right? That's just following the laws of the land. But they should never have our hearts. They should never have our worship. Only Jesus deserves that. There's a moment in the Gospels that I love where Jesus is confronted by some people who want to trap him. They want to make him look bad by getting him to pick a side in one of the political debates of the time. One of the political debates of the time was, should we pay the imperial tax to Caesar as Jews? As Jews, is that somehow betraying God to pay this tax to the Caesar? And so they go to Jesus and they say, Oh, tell us your opinion, thinking, oh, this is great, because he's going to have to pick a side, and that's going to get him in trouble. A bunch of people are going to hate him. He's going to be in trouble, potentially, with the Roman government. So, but they ask him, is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? And then he, he does something brilliant. He says, show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius, and he asked them, Whose image is this on the coin? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, So give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. Now, what is Jesus saying there? Well, when we hear him say that, Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's, that should raise the question, Well, what belongs to God? Well, Jesus has just done a little illustration here to get their minds thinking the right way. Okay, he says, well, Caesar's image is on the coin, so that belongs to him. So what, what Jesus is suggesting is that if something bears the image of someone, then it belongs to them, right? So that raises the question, well, what bears God's image? And if you know your Bible, you know that what bears God's image is us. Human beings, we are made in the image of God, right? So my interpretation of what Jesus is saying here is something like this. Caesar could have your taxes, but he should never have your heart. He should never have your worship. You shouldn't be putting your, your hope in Caesar. And I think this is something that we really need to keep in mind because we live in a time where people are bringing more and more religious zeal to politics. I've heard multiple people say over the last few years, politics is the new religion. And I, I don't want to come across the wrong way here. You know, I'm not saying that Christians should have nothing to do with politics. I mean, politics, quite simply, is just how we structure our society, trying to make it more just, right? And uh, as Christians, we should care about justice and care about society being just, right? But what I'm saying is that we've got to be very careful about what we give our heart and our hope and our allegiance to. When we give too much of our heart to a political party 
or a political candidate or a country or a political ideology, it seems like it is only a matter of time before we are expected to do something that denies Jesus is Lord. And I'm not saying we're being asked to say, oh, Jesus is not Lord. But we're asked to do something that goes against Christian discipleship, right? So if we give too much of our heart to that political party, that political candidate, it's only a matter of time before somebody expects us to hate certain people. And we're feeling a lot of pressure to do that. It's only a matter of time before we, we feel like we're required to be dishonest or not tell the whole truth or even deny something that we know is true for the sake of the, the tribe, the sake of the group. It's only a matter of time before we're expected to pretend to know about things that we really don't have a clue about. Right? It's only a matter of time before we're expected to support some kind of violence or injustice and turn our, turn our eyes from it. And so there's a place for being politically involved and informed and aware. But we have always got to guard our hearts. We need to make sure that we are always living like Jesus is Lord. Not a political party, not a political candidate, not an ideology. You know, as the church, we are the people who confess Jesus is Lord, which means Caesar is not Lord. Uh, we don't say America is Lord. We don't say that the Republican Party is Lord. We don't say that the Democratic Party is Lord. We say Jesus is Lord. And let's think about that. Okay, Jesus is Lord. Jesus, the one who everyone expected to lead a rebellion against the Roman government and then didn't. Jesus, the one who refused to take up arms but instead died on a cross. Jesus, the one who told us to forgive 70 times, 77 times. Jesus, the one who told us, don't love money. Don't find your, your happiness in the abundance of possessions and wealth. Jesus, the one who told us to love our enemies rather than hate them. Jesus, the one who told us that truth would set us free. If we really live like Jesus is Lord, then no political system, party, or ideology is going to be entirely happy with us. And that's how it's supposed to be. I believe in Jesus, the Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. May we be able to say that not just with our mouths, but with our entire lives. Amen? Lord, we thank you um, for these reminders this morning of who you are and what you ask from us and, and how we see you. Lord, we thank you that you shine your light on this whole world. And Father, we pray that more and more people will come to realize who the true king is and who the true source of that light is. And Lord, I pray that you would help us as we follow you and recognize and live as if you are Lord uh, to be the medium through which more and more people come to realize that you truly are the source of the light, the goodness, the beauty in the world. Father, please uh, fill your church with your spirit. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.